And all those that want to go with Lee can go with Lee. I got chills just in singing that last song. I looked around and I looked up and I imagined being in heaven with all of you. Old Gary over there drumming the drums in heaven. And it had tears in my eyes, still does, to think that all of those who love the Lord and believe will be in one place in heaven. And we share in that moment today because they're singing to Him right now, Holy, Holy, Holy. And we join with them. Our music today has been centered on the holiness of God and the and Christ and His blood, all that He's done for us. Really, the godliness of Jesus is where we've been singing today. And today we're going to look at a, at a nearly a whole chapter of Scripture. I know some of you just had a sick feeling come over you that I'm going to preach over a whole chapter of Scripture. But today's chapter is one of those most human encounters with Jesus. And Jesus is most human encounter with this person and what it means for her, what it means for us as we look at it together. I hope that we learn something about ourselves and about Him and about the possibilities of life when we live like Him. We've been, uh, for the last three weeks now, we've been talking about who's your one. Three weeks ago, we passed out the books, the, the prayer books that we're using, and I hope that you all that have them are using them, and I encourage all of you, if you did not get one, it's online at Who's Your One, um, just search Who's Your One prayer book, and you can get the whole thing. Um, but the other thing that I challenged us to do during that time is when you identify the one person that you want that you want to to help lead to the Lord in this coming year, one person in one year that you share that name with us. It can be their first name. It can be whatever. But I want to be able to list those names in the bulletin so that we may all see that there is this number of people that are being prayer, prayed for, but that we may also join you in your prayer for them. And so after three weeks, I have ten names. And I know that there's more of you uh, praying than that. You just may not have understood the instructions. So I'm offering them to you again. If you don't have the little bookmark, just write it on a slip of paper. But help help your church to pray for, for what you're doing. Prayer is everything in this. While we started out with prayer, we won't know what to do next in the life of another person until we've prayed about it. Without prayer, we'll probably mess it up. And we don't want to do that. Today we're going to be in John chapter 4. This is the last sermon I'm going to preach along these lines of, of, of who's your one and what do we do about that? What are some things that we can learn from Jesus in this John chapter 4 passage? You all know it as uh, the Samaritan woman at the well story. And we uh, look to it a lot 
uh, as we try to figure out just how Jesus went about telling people of himself. Because if we can kind of do it the way Jesus did it, then maybe we can do a better job ourselves when we're introducing him to others. When I was in school, we had an evangelism class, and we spent six weeks on this one passage, breaking it down and doing all this stuff. And, uh, and what it comes down to is this. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to bring another person to Jesus? Within the will of God, of course. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at overcoming some ob- obstacles of being persistent. Of uh, the fact that sooner or later everybody has to face the truth about themselves. Okay, but that's not the end. And that ultimately the life that we find with Jesus is such a life of overflowing that we can't help but share it with others. So uh, follow along with me as I read. And uh, then we'll go through section by section. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said, You don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and then come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you're now, and and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. 
But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. But when He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am He. Just then His disciples arrived, and they were amazed that He was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you want? Or, Why are you talking with her? Then the woman left, left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then the harvest comes? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are already already for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering the fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. I just love this story. At so many levels and for so many reasons. And I'm going to quickly go through several of them. And I want you to pay close attention, mark up your Bible so that you can go back this afternoon after the saints are through or whatever you got to do to get that out of your mind and take a closer look at this for yourself, okay? Because there's some important things that Jesus does here at the very beginning. One is the religious class in Jerusalem is at it again. They want nothing to do with what the Samaritans ultimately declare as the Savior of the world. Okay, so he recognizes this and that he's got to leave. He's going to go back to where he can actually minister rather than be constantly barbed and prodded about things that really weren't important, like baptism and these other things that were so focused on by these religious leaders. They'd become a distraction. Jesus will not be distracted from his mission. He has one mission and he, will ne- he is never restricted, distracted from it. And that is to do the Father's will, by the way. So he says, I'm going to go to Galilee, 
And then the, the scripture says that he said it, he had to go through Samaria, which is kind of true, but kind of not true because he could have gone the long way around, which was often done because Jewish people did not want to step foot in Samaria for any reason. And I'll explain later. So this is what they would do. They would go, Samaria is east of Judea, south of Galilee. So they would go, uh, they would go east into the Transjordan, cross the Jordan River, up the Transjordan, have to cross back over the Jordan to go all the way around the end of the, of the uh, Sea of Galilee to get to Galilee. Take about six days to do that. Or you could just leave Judea, go straight through Samaria, get to Galilee in about two days. It was amazing that people would take a whole week out of their life just to avoid another people. But that's what was often done. But on this trip, Jesus decides we're going to go through Samaria. So they go through Samaria. All right. Why? Why is it so bad for a Jew to have anything to do with Samaritans? Well, nobody's really sure of the exact reason why, but we can speculate as to why. During the exile... As you may remember, if you know anything about your Bible, the northern kingdom was taken into exile, right? And they trans. this is what they did. The conquering nation moved everybody out of that country, or tried to anyway, and supplanted them into their country, and then moved other people into what we understand to be Israel or Galilee, Samaria, that area. Okay? Then later, the, the, the southern kingdom, Judea, was taken into captivity, and they were also moved... Okay, but while they were in captivity, they never intermarried with any other race. They stayed pure. Well, one day, the conquering king says, you can go back to your home country and you can even rebuild your temple. Well, the the ones that had been left in Samaria heard about this and they went to offer their help to rebuild the temple. But the pure-blood Jews said, we can't have anything to do with you because you've defiled yourself by intermarrying with these other people. So you can't come and be a part of this. And so they said, okay, well, shame on you. We're just going to go build our own temple on our own mountain. And there becomes the rift. It's not just a geographical thing. It's not just a racial thing. It was a religious thing. They had let, these were brothers and sisters. And they had let a thing like this come in the way. Something that mattered, but not as much as breaking fellowship, destroying family, dishonoring the, the will of God to have one nation that would bring salvation to all the nations. But it had happened, and it was vicious. And so Jesus says, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going through Samaria. The other thing is gender. A man could not speak to another woman unless a, the woman was his wife. Okay? That was just a rule. It's not anywhere in Scripture, really. It was just a rule that they'd come up with. A single man uh, could speak to a woman, but a single man that was a teacher could not speak to a woman. And Jesus most definitely was recognized as a teacher or a rabbi. So not only did he overcome some racial things and overcome some religious differences, when he speaks to this woman, he's also overcoming some gender barriers that existed at the time. And none of this mattered to Jesus. He gets there, and instead of approaching her in the normal Jewish way, he comes with all humility. His heart is open to love her. 
He's showing every bit of mercy to her. He approaches her as if she matters in the world because he matters to her. And he says to her, give me a drink. Something very simple, something that she could rarely understand. But only, I believe, the person of Jesus could overcome these things. He offers her humility, love, mercy, sympathy. He's not a critic of who she is. That I'm sure she had often heard. It was customary if you passed through Samaria and you were a Jew that you spent your time making sure that the dust did not even travel out on your shoes. But he approached her as a friend. Please, give me a drink. The other thing about Jesus in this, it says that he was worn out from this journey. See, I'm of the opinion that Jesus went through Samaria to see this woman. I don't think it was any accident that day. I think he could have probably gone through the Transjordan and done it the old-fashioned way, but he decided to go the short way. But he decided to go the way that had a purpose for him. And that was to show himself to a people who much needed to know who he was. But he was worn out from getting there. And I think sometimes this is the case for us. We decide that we want to bring Jesus to somebody that we know. Maybe it's the one that you've chosen to pray for. But too often the journey gets a little bit too difficult for us to do that. Some things get in our way. Some Maybe some old attitudes are in our way. Uh, who knows what it all may be that we have to overcome. But we we may find ourselves being worn out and trying to get there. If we're going to do this like Jesus, we have to be willing to exhaust ourselves in order to reach the people that we've chosen to reach and that God has given us to reach. Reaching people with the gospel is hard work, especially in our culture today, but especially in theirs too. It's in this place where when Jesus said, for God so loved the world in the previous chapter, is no longer just a theory, but He's putting it into real life practice. And we need to understand that if we're going to say, for God so loved the world, we have to put that in real life practice as we approach other people and as we offer Him to them. We have to be persistent. You notice in the conversation between verses 10 and 15, and I'll refresh your memory. Uh, he says, uh, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And what does she say? <laughs> you don't even have a bucket to give me water. She takes his words very literal. She's living in a literal world. And this exchange happens again. He says it to her again. And she says, well, give it to me so I don't ever have to come back to this well again. We have to be persistent with people when we are sharing them to gospel. When we're sharing them with the gospel. It's very difficult for someone who is not spiritual to have a spiritual conversation. It's very difficult to bring a person to understand that what we are talking about transcends their right now needs in this right now world. But what we are bringing to them 
is salvation. The reason why the Samaritans would have not understood what living water meant was because they didn't even read the whole Bible. They honored the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, but they didn't read the rest. If you look through the prophets, the idea of living water is just all through it. But they had no idea about it. Their, their religious and cultural mores had kept them from understanding the depth and breadth of just who God is. And the people that we wish to reach with the gospel, they're not going to always understand. So what do we do? We're persistent. Jesus could have said, man, you don't know anything. Well, how am I going to make you understand this? He just keeps on. She says something, he says something. She says something until finally he gets to the place where, let's just cut to the chase. Forget about all this religious talk that we're in. Go get your husband and let's talk about this. No matter what culture you were in that was non-Greek, Having more than one husband was a problem. Having more than one wife was a problem. But having five and being divorced five times and then living with a man was a real problem. It explains why she's drawing her water at noon rather than early in the morning when the rest of the women, I'm sure, went when it was cool to draw their water. She was ostracized and talked about because she had lived such a life. She probably lived her whole life in Sikor and she lived this kind of life and nobody really loved her. Nobody really appreciated her. And Jesus is ready for her to really face the music of her life. The thing that was separating her from God was not that these religious problems or these gender problems or these relationship problems or nationality, what separated her from God was her sin problem. And so he just gets right to it. Go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. And he says, oh, I know that. And he begins to explain to her everything about her. Her words help us know that this conversation is a lot more than what we have recorded here. He says, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You sure are in a mess with God. See, you're praying for somebody you love, right? And this who you want. Just show me. If you're not, just show me if you're praying for somebody. The idea was to pray for somebody that you love and care for. What kind of love is it to never confront them with the problem that they have with God? It's not. You can't, you can't shape it and make it to be anything else. Sooner or later, you have to help people see themselves for who they are. You know what? When you come, when you come into the presence of God in any way, You either see yourself for who you are or you see God for who He is or hopefully you see both. But there's no neutrality in this with God. Once people know Him, once you step into that deep water and say, I want you to know my Savior, what you're saying to them is, I want you to know who you really are before God and I want you to know who God really is before you. That's what a prophet does. That's why she calls him a prophet, by the way. If you read the prophets, they were always telling the nation, look, this is what you did wrong, but this is the possibility when you, when you get it right. 
all the way through, the prophet is a critic of what's going on, but he always lays out the possibility with God. Paul says that we're all prophets. <laughs> that we're all been given this job of, 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 ex, of exposing what really is real about our life, but then also the possibilities of that life with God. We have to help people face the truth. Christianity begins with a sense of sin. And so often today, we want people to come to Jesus without knowing their sin. And we cannot do it. It begins with a sense of sin. It begins with the sudden realization that life, as we are living it, is just will not do. And we awake to who we are and we awake to our need of God. I wish there was a little simple formula that I could tell you to say if you say certain things that people are just going to come to that realization. It doesn't happen that way. That's why, you know what? Taking a year, <laughs> saying that we're going to take a year to develop this moment, it requires a year in our culture. It does. We have to first pray that we're going to be a prophet. As we pray for this person, we have to pray that, uh, that we're the person that can unveil the truth for them or to at least help them unveil the truth about their lives while at the same time show them the hope that is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. This woman faced her sin. She had no choice. Jesus had pointed it out right before. And so some may think, well, she's trying to change the subject again here. She wants to talk about religion some more, but God, He's going to have no point, no part of that. Or it could be this. It could be that the woman actually realized what her sin was. And she says to Jesus, Jesus, I see that you're a prophet, or I see that you are a prophet. Right? Um, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our father worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. This woman may have very well been saying to Jesus, I know that I've got this sin in my life, but what do I do about it? We say we worship here. And listen, the, the first act of worship is surrender, by the way. The person that comes before the Lord and says, I surrender all, that's their very first act of worship. This woman is looking for the place to surrender her sin. My people say, I got to go to Mount Gerizim to worship. Your people say that I got to go to Jerusalem to worship. What do I do with myself? What are the rules? Which religion is right? What is the right way? What is the wrong way? Will I be accepted in that church if I go in there and confess my sins? Is another way of saying that. Are people going to look down on me? The religious types? What do I do? What does Jesus say? Let's read it. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then he goes through a little commentary about this. He says, You don't understand what you're worshiping because you don't have all the Scripture. This, this, this feud has separated you from the truth of who God is. But he says, This is what the Father wants. He says, But an hour is coming and it is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit 
And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You know what he just said to her? Set yourself free from all those religious requirements. Deep in your soul lies your spirit. And the spirit of God is crying out to you. Come to me, come to me, come to me. Just go to him, go to him, go to him. And you will be set free from your guilt and your sin. That's worship. What else do we have to give Him but our sin? And and the glory He deserves for relieving us of our sin. He takes it as a gift. And He marvels in it. That we will allow His Spirit to work in our life. This woman is set free from all the religious requirements. And she is able to surrender to God. Maybe for the first time in her life, the light begins to open up for her. And she can see who she really is outside of the condemnation, outside of the guilt, outside of the abuse that she's obviously been under. And when all of that falls away and the light is shining, who is there? The Messiah, she says. This man has told me everything I ever did. And you know what? You know what she's saying in that? This man knows all my sins. He knows everything about me. And I'm still standing here alive. I'm not dead. He didn't strike me down. Like the law says he would. I'm standing here before you. I'm alive. And I'm free. There's a transformation that occurs. Whenever somebody is confronted with Jesus, something's going to happen. And she is transformed. She leaves that place. And it's kind of like two stages. The Jesus and his disciples on the front stage and in the backstage is the woman in the town. And she's telling all about this and everything that's going on. And, uh, and they're there and they get back and they say, here, Rabbi, uh, eat something. And he says, man, he says, I've already eaten. I got food you don't even know about. Which leads us to the other thing. When we obey the will of God, what does Jesus say? He says, my food is to do what? Look it up. To do the will of the one that sent me and to finish his work. That's what feeding his soul. He didn't need anything to eat. His body didn't even need any food to eat. He says, I got everything I need. As long as I'm doing the will of the one that sent me and finishing his work, that's all I want to do. That's the most satisfying thing in the world. And when we begin to offer Jesus to people and they can see him and they know him and it transforms their life, I promise you, you will not want to do anything else with your life. Every opportunity that you get, you are going to immerse in the possibilities of saying, do you know Jesus as Messiah? Because it'll change your life if you do. It'll transform your soul if if you do. So she goes off and shares the wonder. Now this is the other wonder. Sicker's the only town close. The disciples go to Jesus and they come back with food that Jesus doesn't even need. The woman has figured out from one encounter with Jesus exactly who he is. And these disciples still trying to, to kind of blow away the religious chaff that they're hung up in are still trying to figure out who Jesus is. Otherwise, they would have brought the town back with them. 
They weren't quite there yet. They had not had the same experience with Jesus after all these days with him as the woman had had in just a few short hours at the well. So see, the length of time doesn't matter. You can be with Jesus a long time and never get him. Oh, what does matter is the quality. The quality of the interchange. When we stand before people and all they ever see or hear is Christ. That's a quality exchange. That's a quality communication. They're going to get it a lot quicker than if we're trying to hide ourselves behind the words we speak and so confuse and distort who He really is. Once we see Him and once we are able to help others to see Jesus for who He is, there is nothing else to do but to tell others. Why is that so? Because what's happened is the change is here, deep in you. And you want everybody to know you. There's two things that drive us more than anything, to be known and to be loved. And when Jesus has changed you, you want everybody to know the new you. And that's exactly what she went to do with great confidence. And she has shedded the shame that these people had brought upon her. She very boldly goes to them and says, come and meet the man that told me everything I ever did. And they go and what do they say? You know what? We don't believe just because of what you told us anymore. We believe because you've led us into an encounter with the Savior of the world. How do we believe? Do an encounter with Jesus. How do we offer an encounter with Jesus? Through the life that we live for Him. By doing the will of the one who sent Him and by finishing the work that He started. That's how we do it. He finally gets to this place in verse 31. He says, don't you have a saying that says there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? So this is what would happen. The sower, and it was kind of dry. It's the end of the dry season. They planted their seed. They had to bust up the ground a little bit. It was dusty. It was dry. It was not good work being the person that sowed the seed. But four months later, after the rains had come and watered everything, man, there was a great harvest. And the guy that went through reaping that harvest was really the one that got to see the, the best part of it, you know, because that was the fruit of the harvest. And Jesus says, don't you say that four months and then the harvest? And he's saying, I'm here to tell you that the planting and the reaping are all happening at the same time. Everybody gets to rejoice in what's happening here because I've come. This age that we're in now, the planting and the reaping all goes on together. Okay? It doesn't mean that when you plant, you're all always going to reap the very thing that you plant but it always means that there's going to be reaping. And in God's economy, it all happens together. So we are never wondering if it is time to sow or if it is time to reap. Both need to happen all the time. Of course, who gets the harvest? God gets the harvest. So that everything that we do 
is glorious for him. When Jesus says, I've come to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He said, I've come to do exactly what my father wants me to do. And his work is to bring glory to him. He wants every life for him. And that's what I've come to do. There may be your one that you're praying for. Somebody may have already planted the seed in their life. You know that? There's people out there that the seed, the gospel seed has already been planted. They just don't know what to do with it. It needs watering, maybe. Water it. Figure out what it is. Figure out where they are. If they've never heard anything about Jesus, understand nothing about them, then plant the seed. But if the seed is there, water it. And if it looks as though they're, they are ripe to bring glory to the Father, lead them to Jesus. But you never get to be neutral in any of that. You never get to look at a person's life and say, I'm not doing any of that. That's the same as saying to them, Jesus didn't die for you. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus died for everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus came for all the world. And the wages of that sin is death. And if you're praying for one that you love, I want you to think about that for a minute. There could very well be a day when we're all in heaven singing holy, holy, holy. And the one that you love is not in heaven. And it's just cries of torment. I know I don't mention that a lot, but it's always on my mind. The reality of who we are for Christ is this. He sent us into the world with the good news. Jesus sets us free. That He is the Savior, the Messiah of the world. You cannot leave that bottled up and have a good conscience. You can't. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. To feast on the food that He gives us and to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. I pray, I pray that as we move through this together over this next year, that there will be many testimonies that you're able to provide your church about just what this has meant for you and hopefully that lives have been saved. You may be here today and you've never believed. You're looking for that encounter with Jesus. Well, I can tell you this. God is always calling out to you, spirit to spirit, to come to Him. If, you've, if you're in that place where you're saying to yourself, Man, I think I would like this life. I think I would like to be free. That's God's Spirit calling to your spirit. Come, be free. Come, surrender your life to me and I will set you free.
If that's where you are today, then I pray that you will come this morning in our time of invitation. If you're here today and you're still feeling timid about sharing Jesus with another person, don't feel like you're alone. About 85%, this is a, this is a, this is a thing that really scared me one day. 85% of the church that was surveyed in 2019, January 2019, that was January of this year, 85% of the church that was surveyed had never shared Jesus with anyone in their life. So just count out 85 people in this room, and that's how many people have never shared Jesus with someone in their life. That's a lot of, that's, that, that's a lot of Christians keeping the good news bottled up. If that's where you are today, then we're going to pray that you can overcome that. And that you can seek out to do the will of the one who has sent you and to finish his work. Let's pray together.